0: Today we dive into all things cooking classes, including deciding on your subject, how to teach the class itself, and, of course, the best ways to sell it. Next on make and bacon. Hey there, I'm Jason Logston, and this is Making Bacon. We're all about helping you serve your fans, grow your income, and get the most out of your blog. Today's episode is brought to you by my very own self-publishing 101 course. The average home cook owns almost 50 times more printed cookbooks than PDF cookbooks. So why are you limiting yourself? With the advent of print-on-demand companies like Amazon KDP and IngramSpark, it's now easier than ever to become your own publisher. But if you don't know what you're doing, you can waste not only your time, but also your money. After publishing 15 cookbooks, including a top 10 cookbook on amazon i know publishing especially self-publishing and i want to share my expertise with you that's where my video course comes in stepping you through the entire self-publishing process so you can get your printed cookbook up for sale on amazon without making any mistakes you can check it out now at make that publish now now on to the show As bloggers, we often focus so much on building out our websites and social media accounts, hoping for ad revenue, but we often forget there are other sources of income out there. One of the ones with the biggest potential is teaching cooking classes, but it can be intimidating figuring out where to get started. Luckily, today's guest is the perfect person to help us out. She is the founder of Hidden Rhythm, a culinary marketing agency. And through her signature program, Cooking Class Business School, she helps culinary pros create and market online cooking classes and memberships so they can unlock more freedom, flexibility, and fulfillment in their lives. She also hosts the weekly podcast, Experiential Table. Can't wait to learn from today's guest, Cynthia Sumanian. Cynthia, welcome to Make and Bacon.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Jason.
0: Uh, I'm really excited to dive into cooking classes. It's something that I've done a few times and enjoy doing, but I like to start off every episode by asking, what's it like around your dinner table on a typical day?
1: Oh, that's a great question. So around our dinner table, it's <laughs> we're eating a later and later these days. So I have an 11-month-old and another one on the way due in just, I don't want to say a few months, more than a few months. So I'm always telling my husband we have to eat earlier. We have to eat earlier, earlier, and we're we're eating at like 9 p.m. every night. But right now it's quiet because our baby sleeps well. But I think it's going to get pretty loud around the dinner table pretty soon here.
0: <laughs> You're enjoying the the calm before the storm when the the new one is there. <laughs> yep, absolutely. I can relate to the uh, the struggle with eating later and later my wife's schedule she works at cbs sports and it's especially at certain times of the year it's like she works until eight or nine and if we want to have dinner together then we're eating at you know 8 30 or 9 30 when she gets home and it's everything you read is like you should eat early it's like but i kind of like having family dinner you know
1: yeah I, that's the thing we we like to eat together my husband is french american my background is persian our culture is both have food at the center of it. So it's important that we sit down and eat, but sometimes it's like 9.30 when we're done and I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I could fall asleep at the dinner table right now.
0: Are there any Persian dishes or ingredients that you think more cooks should you know know about and kind of learn about? Oh, that is a
1: great question. Well, it's so funny because I just through my work have talked to people about persian food and it's interesting what they know of the cuisine which is the tadik the crispy rice from the bottom of the pot everyone knows tadik but i think some of the ingredients that are still pretty unknown in persian cooking i mean we have these spice blends that you just can't find here i mean there are a few i live in oakland california and we have a great great spice shop here called oak town and they actually have the spice blend it's called advie and it's a it's kind of like a seven spice but it's so good and you add it to stews and it just has this complex flavor that you can't create with anything else. So I think some of those spice blends will really be popular. Um, Also dried lime, that is a key ingredient. And I'm starting to see those become more and more popular at uh, mainstream grocery stores. So it's fun to see those ingredients in the aisles, but I think we still have a long way to go in getting people to use them.
0: I love different ingredients like that, especially spice blends that add such complexity to dishes that take things in different directions than we're used to from like from my general american palate it's it's always fascinating to me
1: yeah yeah
0: so i want to dive into cooking classes i've done a few myself both in person and virtually and it's something i'm always exploring so i'm looking forward to learning from your expertise <laughs> what do you think the main benefits are for food bloggers of getting into teaching cooking classes
1: absolutely so I would say, especially online, and that's where I specialize, is really helping culinary pros build out their online cooking class business. One of the biggest benefits, Jason, is really the ability to teach anyone in the world from your home kitchen. And I think this really resonates with people who have done in-person events. My background is all about like in-person culinary events. I did a lot of that for years before doing what I do now. And while those events are awesome and nothing really replaces that in-person face-to-face connection you're limited in who you can reach so just you know and and your listeners know this i mean you have food blogs that can reach anyone in the world and that's what makes it so powerful you can connect people you know, across the globe online cooking classes adds another element to it. Now you're actually interacting with them in a live teaching space and they're interacting with each other beyond, say, the comment section of your blog. So it's really powerful in terms of building connection, deepening the community you have, expanding the community as well. And of course, there's the financial benefit to it. My students are generating like meaningful income through teaching online especially those who have audiences already and they're finding another way to monetize their community which is which is fantastic and then we also have some who have gone the corporate class route which we can talk more about later
0: I love that concept of reaching people all around the world. That was definitely a big benefit for me. We just recently did a class that was a cocktail demo, and we had a bunch of people from our community, and we had people you know, for joining us from Australia and from South America and people wow. that they would never fly anywhere to, you know, spend an hour with us. Like they will sometimes go to the, the three-day conference that we host, but they're not going to go for an hour, but online, you can serve all these people and really connect with them so much better. Why do you think there is more of a connection when you are cooking with someone?
1: Oh my goodness. I mean, I, I think we all can agree like food is that medium that just breaks down barriers i mean i i experienced that growing up my parents immigrated to the us from iran during the revolution in 79 and they landed in of all places jason north dakota (laughs) okay so they landed in north dakota with barely any english and it was through food through inviting friends over for kebab and rice dishes that they built their community and so that's just one story i know everyone kind of has a story similarly where it's like food was that thing that connected them to maybe people they normally wouldn't cross paths with and so i think that's still why cooking with someone is this powerful experience because you're you're engaging in something together you're not just talking about something you're actually doing it and it breaks the ice because i mean i think we've all been in those situations where you know we we're kind of like shy. We're nervous. Like, oh, what do we say? What do we do? Whether it's an in-person class, but the minute the ingredients come out and the knives start chopping, it's like, okay, we're doing this. And um, back in my events business that I used to have before, working with food brands we always would encourage our brands to do these experience driven events where people were doing things because when people are doing things, making things, rolling their sleeves up, they're more likely to remember the experience and have a positive association with you and your brand. And as a culinary instructor, you you're a brand. You know, bloggers are brands of course, you all know that. So why you know, it's, it, there's no better substitute for doing something with their community rather than talking at them or you know other forms of media that exist
0: yeah i feel like there's a shared experience that you have when you're doing the same thing that someone else is doing and you're really working together doing it yes. and then there's all this talk about authenticity as bloggers and opening up to your audience and i feel like people are getting nervous about you know how much do i open up how much do i not and i feel like inviting people into your kitchen in a very like controlled manner like you only see in my kitchen what i want you to see <laughs> and i can put the dog in the other room if i want like but <laughs> you are, it's a lot more intimate than it is just writing a blog post. And I feel like that can contribute yeah. something to it as well.
1: Absolutely. It's, it's controlled chaos. I call it right. It's like what you see in this frame. I mean, right now to the, like the left of this frame, I've got a messy playpen. I've got like a lot going on behind the camera, but yeah, it's true. And, and that's the other thing too is, and something that I remind my students of in my program is that when your community is signing up for these classes and they turn their cameras on, they're letting you into their world and that's that's kind of a scary vulnerable place to be in especially if you're cooking with a blogger that you followed for years or a chef that you respected and admire and you're looking at your kitchen like okay I hope it looks decent so there there is some vulnerability there that I think we have to respect on both sides and it is what makes it a much more personal experience even more so than maybe going to a cooking school where everything is perfect and laid out for you i mean when like you're essentially in everyone's homes than they're in yours when you're doing this online
0: i never really thought about it from that that flip side of that you know they are also letting you into their homes and you're like that is a a gesture on their side that i think brings a lot of people closer together absolutely so if someone's listening they're like i'm kind of interested doing a cooking class but what should it be on? What subject, like what advice do you have for people that are just like, I wanna do one, but I blog about a lot of stuff. How do I narrow this down?
1: Yes, yes. So the number one piece of advice that I tell my community, they are so sick of me hearing me say it, but I don't care. I'm just gonna keep saying, I'm sure Jason, there are things that you say over and over again and you're like, I'm gonna keep saying it. It's to (laughs) focus on a niche. You got to focus on a niche. And I I think, you know, it's it's not just in the online cooking class space, especially in the food space, no matter what you're doing online, right? I'm sure bloggers have heard this too. You've got to focus on a niche because it is such a crowded space. And, you know, I have some students that are like, well, you know, so-and-so cooks everything under the sun and teaches classes and sells out. Like that's great. They have a massive audience, and they started building that audience ten plus years ago, right? So a lot of it depends on where you are and the audience you already have. Most of my students have blogs, but it you know isn't their primary source of income, and they are just kind of all over the place around what it is they want to teach because they have so many interests. So my advice is to focus on a niche, and there are different ways to think about a niche. I think one part of it is who you want to teach. Is there a certain, not necessarily like age demographic, but there are different ways to kind of slice and dice an audience, right? So are you drawn to a certain type of person, a certain type of mindset that someone may have? Like there are people who, for example, are, you know, the example I use often is like college grads, right? College grads who want to go vegan. Like that is a niche, right? And you could teach them a bunch of different things. Or you could focus on the actual, you know, what you're teaching them to do. So maybe you wanna teach vegan sushi to everyone under the sun. That's still pretty niche, right? So there's different ways to think about it. I think one element in addition to kind of who you're teaching or what you're teaching or the combo of both is what I call your unique brand story. And that's that's actually when you look in to figure out your niche. Oftentimes people are like, let me go do the market research. Let me survey a bunch of people. And, you know, you can find it, you can find a survey, you can find a poll that's going to give you the answer to whatever you want. And you can you can skew it however you'd like, right? So at the end of the day, I'm like, you know what? What your niche is is actually inside you. It's based on your experiences, your passion, your skill set, your story, and if you do enough digging that will come out and that's that's where we actually start in my program we start with niche and we start with figuring out deep inside like what is that thing that you were meant to teach and then we go from there.
0: I love that idea of you know looking kind of inside and I'm a big proponent of like belief-based niches you know mm-hmm. that going beyond just that you know what are are you teaching and I like your example of the college grads <laughs> and it's like getting even more granular. Like, do they wanna go vegan because they object to mm-hmm. the industrial agricultural system? Do they wanna go vegan because for health reasons? Yeah. Do they wanna do it because it's less expensive, you know, in some cases? Like, cause you can hit all of those in very different ways and have other content that's gonna support it that, those groups might not necessarily care about depending on their reasoning.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, we talk about that in terms of what we call like the psychographics, right? So thinking beyond just, you know, gender, age, geography, I mean, those are such superficial levels of, you know, defining your audience, but yeah, I love the examples you shared. I mean, why, why would someone go vegan? There are so many different reasons and beliefs and you could create a whole culinary series on each of those and have them be very very different
0: so someone narrows it down a little bit they say (laughs) okay i want to do you know this this college grads that are going vegan that's my niche i've been writing about it like i know my niche now but i have you know 400 recipes on my blog what what do i specifically teach them in a class like how big do i go how small do i go kind of how do i narrow it down to one or two things that I get at out of everything that I yeah, do. Yeah.
1: I. Oh my gosh. I mean, and I have to say, I mean, what a luxury to have those recipes. I know that it takes time and work. I've had like three food blogs. I mean, started, ended, started at right. Three different food blogs, three different names, like been there and done that. I have so much respect for food bloggers because I know how much work it goes into creating those recipes. So I will say if you're sitting on 400 recipes, like you're you're well on your way to to creating a cooking class side business that is going to be much much easier than someone who doesn't have those recipes to start with. So that's that's the good news. But now you've got to go through them, right? And so I think part of it is understanding where you want to start with your audience, right? So there are different types of offers you can create. So I talk about kind of this a la carte version, which is just a one-off class. You could do a series of classes, like a six-week cooking series. We're gonna cook every Monday evening. Or you could do a membership, right? And for people who have never taught before, I advise them to start with an a la carte, get that experience of teaching a live class, see how it goes. And then a series is also really great if you are trying to help someone build habits. So, you know, a one-off class could be good if you just want to do like a fun, you know, we're going to cook some pastas from the Italian Riviera, whatever, fine. But if you actually wanted to say, teach someone how to make pasta from scratch and try, you know, to make five different types, or if you wanted to help this college student go vegan and you wanted to give them the skills to do that so that they could actually, um, you know carry that through after your class then like a series is a great way to do that so there are different formats when it comes down down to actually narrowing what recipes you teach i mean that's where you can look at the data and maybe see like what's the most popular you know what what you think would be the most engaging and interesting to teach because there are some recipes out there that don't make good recipes for classes like <laughs> one one example that comes to mind is like someone I know was doing a, a cooking class and it was, she was focusing on, I don't remember the name of the dish, but it was Vietnamese cuisine and the ingredient list was just like two pages, Jason. <laughs> and while that may be okay for a blog, if you really have someone who's interested in that and whatever, for an online cooking class, it might take the full hour just to talk through the ingredient list. So... There are different nuances based on your nation, and also based on the skill level of your of your students too. So if you're teaching advanced and people who like want that really like extra crazy ingredient list and they want to spend time with you talking about it, that's one thing. But for the most part, you've got to meet your people where they are.
0: So I have a question about longer term cooking foods. What's a good way to handle classes around that? My background is sous vide cooking. So some of them are... 72 hour cooks, you know, people that do braising can run into that or even roasting when it's, you know, one to two hours. Smoking, you know, niches Mm -hmm. like that can be eight to 10 hours. How do you recommend approaching a class like that that kind of has a big chunk of non active time?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. We have some people in my program who are bread bakers and they have to deal with that as well. So there are a few ways to think about it. One is doing a demo style class which is you walking through the process and you would have you know, your, your sous vide prep at the multiple stages and people are watching. Now, demos aren't necessarily my favorite because they're not as interactive, right? So what we talked about at the beginning of, the, of our conversation, people are sitting there watching, unless you're really, really good and you can give them something to do while they watch you, it's more of them kind of watching Food Network or a YouTube
0: show versus participating. So that's the challenge there. And the demos would be more like the, you put this in the oven and then three hours later through the magic of TV, we have what it looks like. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And so there's a lot of that. And, and when I talk about online cooking classes, I, my brain immediately goes towards the interactive hands-on, everyone has their cameras on sort of model, but that doesn't mean the other side doesn't exist. In fact, a lot of people are very successful doing demo style classes where maybe their audience is commenting and they're chatting on Facebook Live or some other platform, or maybe even still Zoom, but they're not actually cooking along. So cooking along versus a demo, really, really different experiences. But one other thing that you could do, and this kind of goes back to what I had uh, talked about briefly earlier, is a series class, right? So... What you could do is actually have them watch a video, have them prep something in advance, pop in for the class where you could teach them a live portion of it, right? Then they can kind of go back and you know you could do like a camp almost, like meet camp. I don't know, do meet camp. And so you can get kind of creative with it, but I think of mixing recorded content that they could watch in advance, get things started with a live component is a way to make that work. But it's very, very possible. And I think that you could still have that interactivity without it just being like a complete one-sided demo, really.
0: I like that idea. That's almost like a hybrid yeah. of, here's a little bit of a demo, here is, now we're gonna finish it off. I've generally tried to come up with one thing that can cook sous vide during the time, because mm-hmm. there are things that cook in like 30 to 60 minutes. And then I'll be like, and now the chuck roast that we cooked, you know three days ago that you did on your own, let's pull it out. And I try to make sure that the the interesting aspects of that is what happens after it comes out, that a lot of people in my audience are like, I know how to put a piece of meat into a, a bag and put it in the yeah. sous vide machine. Like they, they get that. So it's like, okay, now that it's there and it's actually less of a sous vide class, it's more of like, what do you do with it when it's done sous videing? Right. Which, um, <laughs> Has worked pretty well for a lot of my people
1: yeah yeah that, that that's exactly it. it's like finding those those milestones or there's key moments in the recipe where people are going to be most interested and and ready for you to teach them something so yeah i love that that's great
0: so you mentioned zoom is that how you recommend most classes be taught are there other platforms that you've used or recommend what do you yeah kind of suggest for people oh, that's such a this?
1: great question because i I'm literally going to do a live stream on this tomorrow because the tech. I mean it. Like anything, I mean when there's this wave of, you know, popularity in, in an area, the tech quickly follows. So, you know, while people were teaching online cooking classes before the pandemic, I think we all know that they certainly were on the rise because of the pandemic, and you know they're they're continuing to hold steady. So these companies, these tech companies are coming out with platforms to really take Zoom head on or to build around Zoom. So there are some options out there that kind of wrap around Zoom and they have everything from scheduling, payments, email reminders, but the, the teaching platform is still actually Zoom. And then there's some others who have kind of built around a different technology for video. So what I will say is this. The platforms offer convenience. It comes at a price, so they will take a percentage and it varies depending on which one you go through. But at the end of the day, I will say right now, Zoom is the interface that people are most familiar with on both sides, the instructor side and the the student side. So whether you go through a platform or you decide to just hook it up yourself and get a Zoom account, which you could totally do, by the way, like you could do this yourself. I teach a DIY version in my program because... You know, why not? You can do it. No matter which kind of way you go, I'd say right now, Zoom is still kind of the the household name around it. And the thing to think about too, is you wanna make sure that there's as little friction as possible for your students, right? It's going to be enough for them to have to get the recipes, get the grocery list, get the groceries, get everything ready. If you, if you force them to do a mise en place before, then they're going to have to do that. Right? So tech is one other hurdle that they have to go through to take your class. Then it's not going to be that great of an experience. So I will say that. And then one other thing about platforms is that they are very popular right now. And a lot of them are coming out and they're very excited to get people on board. The one thing that I tell my students and just in general, my community is ask them about their support. (laughs) Ask them about their support because whenever you have a company growing quickly they're excited to sign you up but if it's you know if your class is in 20 minutes and something's not working and you can't get a hold of anyone that is going to cause an awful experience for not only you but of course your students so uh, just we, we just have to be careful around that whenever we work with platforms figure out what's their support model like because you want to make sure you you and your students can get that help that they need before the classes start
0: I like that, that everyone generally does know Zoom and talking about saying things over and over again. One of the things that I always say is like, like start small yeah. and like, what is the simplest thing you can do? And I feel like use Zoom a few times or, you know, Facebook live, if you're better at that, like whatever, like platform you're, you know, like use that. And then if you do four or five or 10 and you're like, I really wish I had these features, then you can find a platform that has those features. Cause you know, you actually want them exactly. where- Exactly trying to take on something huge is so hard. Yeah.
1: And also the other thing that I've noticed is oftentimes people just assume that if they get the tech set up, the class is going to be great. And so they'll come to me and say, Oh, Cynthia, that's cool. You teach this program and you teach all these other things, but I just want to buy that tech piece. And, I, and I'm like, okay, you know what? I'll just give that to you for free because you're going to come back to me and say, I need to get people to my classes. I need to learn how to teach effectively because the tech is just the tech. And if you had two classes side by side and one had mediocre tech, but an amazing instructor who was engaging, and the other had the best tech in the world, but a lackluster instructor. The first one would win out every single time. So I think that's the thing to remember is the tech is designed to enable you to be your best, but you've got to do all the other work to get people there, you know, understand what you're teaching. do do that that real hard grind before you actually press record or go live.
0: <laughs> yeah, I feel like as long as you're not like horrible, horrible quality, you know exactly. If you te- do a good job teaching and you have a compelling class, people will respond to that over something that looks slick and polished and is just boring or complicated or confusing yeah. for, the, for the attendees. Yeah, people
1: want want what's real. They, they want to feel like they're actually in your kitchen, and, and that can go a really long way, absolutely.
0: The analogy I always use is that I know Christina Peters who does the food photography club and she's a great photographer and we're good friends and i say like you could give me like a ten thousand dollar you know setup like camera setup and you could give her like a point and shoot yeah. like disposable <laughs> camera and her photos would still be better than, than mine and i'm a decent photographer but like she knows so much about how to do compelling photography that it doesn't matter exactly that i have better equipment she can just nail it anyway exactly
1: and so so many times people think that like the tech is the crutch for them. And they think if I go buy that fancy camera, then I'm going to make so much money by teaching online. And it's like, no, it, you, that's the last thing you should worry about. Use your iPhone, use what's built in. I know you've had Kathy Hester on the show before and, and I've spoken with her yes. too. And I, I love her approach. Cause she also is like, start small, build up your equipment as you start earning money to justify it.
0: Yep. You don't know what you need until you've done it a few times. <laughs> yeah. And then you can start getting an idea if you need more or not need more, but you don't have to do it out of the gate. Absolutely. Yep. What are some mistakes that you see people make when they're during this cooking (laughs) process outside of focusing on the tech? What are things that people should try to avoid?
1: Yeah. It's so funny. I actually don't talk about the tech as, as the mistake, but I need to add that. I think there are four mistakes now. (laughs) You've just reminded (laughs) me of one. Well, so one of them we've actually already talked about, which is, um, assuming that a bigger audience is better and so the flip side is really to focus on a niche and you know that that comes down to what we talked about earlier which is this idea of being able to stand out and it's like yes if you could create a class that could appeal to everyone in the world great go for it but that that's never going to happen and even if it did you wouldn't break through the noise so let's <laughs> let's deal with the reality of the fact that things are crowded but aside from that uh, a few other mistakes that i see people make often is the first is kind of skipping to the sale. So not spending time nurturing their audience. Now, I actually don't think your listeners are gonna have a problem with this one. I think this is where food bloggers really understand the value of content and relationship. But there are people who you know, are in the culinary space who are new to kind of this content creation um, work And they think like, okay, I, I have classes. I'm just going to go ahead and put that link to enroll everywhere. And I might even run some Facebook ads. (laughs) That's the other thing. It's like on top of that, let's run some Facebook ads to my class, which Facebook ads have a place in marketing, but running them directly to your sales page for your event is, is not one of them in my opinion. So I would say a lot of people make the mistake of not investing in building their funnel their, their marketing funnel, really, you know, attracting their ideal student, engaging them with content, their email newsletter, right? Whether or not they have a blog, it doesn't matter, but they've, they've got to show up in their world somehow. And then getting to a place where, yeah, here's my class, go enroll. And by then most of the work has been done, right? You, you've you already built that relationship. You've helped them understand what your class can do for them, what problems it can solve for them. So that, that big, chunky middle of the funnel is where I think a lot of people, I don't want to say get lazy. I think a lot of people don't know that that's where you should be investing more of your time. And the, the other mistake is related to that. And that's not investing in your email list. I'm a big, big proponent, proponent, excuse me, of email marketing. I use it in my own business. It's, it's, you know, helped me in so many ways. And I think a lot of people are dependent on Instagram and Facebook and other platforms that could disappear quickly. And if you've been in the business long enough, you've seen those shifts happen. So making sure that people understand that you don't really own your audience unless you have that email address and the value of that email address. So I teach a lot about email marketing within my program. They come in thinking they're going to learn how to teach online cooking classes, but really it's a course on how to build out this marketing engine that they could use no matter what they end up teaching. That's kind of the secret behind it.
0: (laughs) So that big middle of the funnel, as you called it, I think that's a great like a concept of looking at it that way. What is some good content you can put there to either grow trust or to establish your expertise that is, you know, conducive to supporting, selling a cooking class down the road? Because I know it can shift depending on what your long-term offer is. So what have you found that's good for cooking classes?
1: What's interesting is there are a few ways to go about it. And I teach my students, this idea of content buckets and how, you know, you can either inspire, relate, educate. There's a fourth one. But the point is like, you can kind of hit each of those buckets based on the content content that you share. And so so often we think that we have to be like sharing recipes constantly or sharing tips constantly. And where I see a lot of opportunity, even in emails, is to share personal stories, is to share stories that really connect you with your audience. And so while it might be a story about that time you got the wrong ingredient for a recipe at the grocery store, it may turn into a conversation around something else. And I know personally that the emails I've sent where I am talking about something that's not even related to my business, but I tie it back to it in a way, it's not totally out of left field, but I do, share something a bit more personal, not super vulnerable, but just a little, like one layer below, it gets the most engagement. People respond, they reply, and they feel like, you know, I'm just a normal person like they are. So I think when it comes to content, recognizing that, you know, with an online cooking class, people are going to invest time and money to be there with you, right? It's different than going to a blog and reading a blog they're actually going to show up for you for this one hour time slot or 90 minutes or two hours and spend time with you. So they kind of want to make sure they like you (laughs) and (laughs) right. Like bloggers know, know how to do that. And, and clearly, you know, through content, know how to tell stories. And so that's where I'm like, your audience has a leg up, but you know, there are people who are new to this idea of talking about things outside of just the recipe and the how to. So I would say those are the obvious things to cover, but going another level deeper and, and sharing, like, it doesn't have to be highly personal, but just something that's a little bit more than the, the expected content. I think that can go a really long way.
0: I think it's funny that you talk about that with personal experiences. Someone from my mastermind group, Shelly does, um, like post-surgery nutrition and like keeping people like on the path and, uh, maintaining health afterwards. And she talks about like her biggest email like response that she got was she got hit by a tornado recently. And so she had a whole email about like, you know, like we lost our roof. And like, so, you know, all of us have these storms that happen in our lives. And here's how you can like weather the storms and the foundation. And she like her email wasn't about the storm, but it was like based on the storm and using a storm analogy and shared that experience, Mm -hmm. which was a personal experience. But like you're saying, it's not this like, here's pictures of my my baby experience. It's just a something that happened to me. She tied it into our business and she gets more response from that email than all the other emails that she, she's put out there.
1: Absolutely. And I think there's this fear that sending too many emails is spammy and we don't want to spam people. And and I get it. We've all been on the other end when we get those emails that are just so annoying. We, we can't wait to unsubscribe, but I don't unsubscribe to emails that I enjoy reading. It's plain and simple, right? So uh, I think part of it's just getting over this fear of people unsubscribing and and understanding that, okay, well, if they do, then they're not right for you. And that's great, right? We're we're niching down even more. So there's a little bit of like the sense of rejection when someone unsubscribes or this idea that, oh, maybe we're like spamming people's inboxes and we hate being you know, being on the other end of that. But if you are sending quality content, then you actually like should not feel like you're being spammy. And another thing, just a quick tip, is that a lot of my students when they show me their email newsletters, they're like, Well Cynthia, I, I spent so much time working on this and I can't believe you want me to send like one a week. And I look at it and I'm like, oh my goodness. I just had this conversation with a student of mine earlier. And I said this is four weeks of emails in one, <laughs> right? This concept of an email newsletter, I, I don't even like that phrase, but I say it because we know what that means for the most part. It's not like everything but the kitchen sink that you put into it, right? Each of those blocks that she was showing me could have been its own email. And she was wondering why people weren't clicking on the links. I'm like, cause you've got 20 links. Like, you're, like what, what do you want them to click on? So I think we, we've got to move away from this idea that emails have to be these long, lengthy, content-filled beasts, when really you can keep it short to the point, punchy, and send an email once a week and not have to like go crazy having to create all that content.
0: It's definitely something I struggle with. <laughs> I have known for my very long, information-packed <laughs> emails, but something that is on my to-do list to work on but i have not i mean if you yet.
1: can if you can keep up with it more, more power to you but it's like when people are struggling to be consistent i'm like Well take that email and, and divide it into four pieces now you're good for a month so
0: yeah most of mine are built into autoresponders which so i can i only have to do it once and then everyone will eventually get it down the road there so at least go. it's not a, a weekly thing i need to do i can yeah. sit down and put out yeah, that, five or ten of them and then exactly <laughs> go yeah the coast i mean that's
1: that's like next level that's that's the way to go automation all the way i love that
0: <laughs> so how has COVID changed like the cooking landscape i mean obviously it's had a huge impact how do you think it's changed it both in kind of like the last year and a half, but also the, maybe the next, you know, three to five years.
1: Wow, yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's clear that this last year and a half, more people have been in the kitchen than ever before. I mean, I think we all experienced the the sourdough bread baking phenomenon. <laughs> I actually got into sourdough the November before COVID, and I was obsessed with it. And I was like, I'm gonna bake bread all the time. And then I couldn't find flour and I got really annoyed. I was like, you know, this entitled new bread baker thinking, ah, oh, where's my <laughs> bread flour? And I haven't baked bread in a long time since. So, but I'll just say, I mean, yeah, it was COVID did have some silver linings. And one of the, one of those silver linings was people spending more time in the kitchen, just slowing down a bit. Slowing down, and not everyone. I mean, I think it's still a luxury to be able to say that. I think there were people who, you know, were were struggling to get by, and so for them, it it wasn't like this, you know, beautiful idyllic kitchen scene that they have, where they're like, "Oh, I'm going to like bake some bread for fun." I mean, it certainly was tough for a lot of people, but I do think it did bring more people into the kitchen who normally were eating takeout or eating out at restaurants, that sort of thing. So. I think we've seen a nice shift to to home cooking again. I think moving forward, I mean, I'm curious what, what three to five years will be from now, but I will know in the short term, I mean, this summer, like, like entertaining is just going to be, I think, on fire. I think people are so excited to open up their homes again, to have friends over. I mean, we recently just had friends over for the first time since before COVID and our first non-family members to come over and it was just awesome. And we're like, oh, we missed this. So I think we're going to see a trend of content And I, you know, encourage my students to teach classes around entertaining and kind of the, nothing new, I'd say it's, it's kind of just going back into, you know, what we had been doing before, but maybe certain things are more emphasized. So this idea of gathering, whether it's simple or more formal, I think the holidays this year are going to be really big because people are going to go all out. And so I think we're going to see, you know, more content around those types of contexts three to five years from now? I don't know. I mean, I I want to believe that more people are cooking every single day. Like I, I believe the world is a better place the more people know how to cook. That's just my point of view. So I hope that grows.
0: I think so many more people understand the technology too. Like my parents and my in-laws, any of them would now sign up for a online Zoom class where two years ago they'd be like, I don't know what that means. And I don't know t- technology. Like I don't have a Zoom device or they'd say something like that. And now they're like, oh yeah, we, we, we know how Zoom works. Like we can do that. Oh yeah.
1: I mean the online cooking class space, I didn't even talk about that, but you're absolutely right. I think, you know, before COVID this technology existed and there were people out there trying to teach online and it just wasn't gaining traction because, you know, people had alternatives and it, it wasn't something that they thought was even really a great experience. Like, oh, I, I don't, I don't even think I could do that. I couldn't learn to cook online on, on what's zoom. I've never heard of zoom. Right. (laughs) But now you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the barrier has been taken down and people understand that it is possible. And even as you know, people kind of go back to, you know, traveling and seeing each other and, and we're not all locked up in our homes. One of the things that doesn't change is the fact that we are all still going to be geographically dispersed, right? Like that, that was before COVID as well. So you know if you have a college daughter who's studying abroad in Rome and you want to do an online cooking class like you could do it right i know my you know classmates of mine from school were all over the country we can do it so it, sometimes we forget that we've actually all always kind of been spread out and so there are a lot of use cases for online cooking classes going forward and then of course the the corporate class space which is super interesting because you know companies are starting to announce their policies for employees coming back to the office and whether they're working remotely or what and what we're seeing more and more is there's a lot of flexibility and there are going to people be people who are you know not going to be going into the office or they have teams all over the world which once again, existed before COVID. So now it's like, right, there's, there's some things that have been this way before, but now we have another way to bring teams together, to bring families together. And it's something that people are more willing to try because of the experience we all went through since March, 2020.
0: I'd love to dive a little more into the, the concept of corporate classes Mm -hmm. and kind of what that looks like from a teaching or just a, a conceptual perspective
1: yeah absolutely so corporate classes are where we're seeing a lot of traction because one companies have money <laughs> so if you think about the process for filling up a class if you wanted to get let's say 20 people in a class which is a great number by the way you could have 20 people paying 50 dollars, and this would be say like a, a public class right that you're just doing so a thousand dollars there or you could talk to one manager at a team you know, within a company who is going to bring their team of 20 to your class and you could charge more than $50 because you're creating an experience custom for them. It's a team building experience. So, you know, I, from my, my light research, a lot of companies, especially those in tech, consulting, finance have a budget of around $100 per person per quarter right? And they're looking to do usually one team building event a quarter. So if you could be that one event, things could work out really well for you. And if that company is Google, then you might get referred to another team and then another team. So there are some network effects there at play, which are really, really great. But the idea with corporate classes is that they it's a little bit different than public classes. If you think about a public class, you have, you know, 20 people signing up because they are so excited to learn how to make vegan sushi. That's always my go-to example. (laughs) But with a corporate class, this person's hiring you because they need to do something fun. They need to celebrate a milestone. They need to break, like maybe there's a new hire that they've got to like orient into the team. And they're kind of doing it because they need to do something. And it's like, your class is that vehicle for connection. Not all 20 people are probably going to care about what you're teaching, which is the tough part from a culinary perspective, because you're like, I want everyone to be so excited about this thing we're doing. But it's pretty cool that through your experience, they're bonding and connecting. And it's, it has a different vibe than a public class because people know each other. They're cracking jokes. It's different. But one of the things I encourage my students to do is create an experience around it. Package it as an experience because experiences allow you to charge more than, say, a class. And with that, you've got to add some other elements to it. You can't just call it something else. But companies are willing to pay for experiences. And you know, I, my sister-in-law, she tells me all the classes that they've done at their company, and it's it's so fascinating the range that they have. But just last week, they did. A pasta making class with an Italian grandma in Italy, you know, and here we are, well into COVID, and and they're still going strong. So there's a big opportunity there for sure, especially if you have a an interesting niche, like a cuisine. What what, what I've seen work well is like global cuisines. So people who are focused on like say Sri Lankan cuisine, or you know, cuisines that may not be as familiar to everyone you know here whether it's in the US or Canada or wherever people listening live those unique cuisines i think persian food for example i mean those those are kind of the fun cuisines that make people say oh that would be interesting and unique and different so
0: you talked about making them experiences what are some things that bloggers, you know, the teachers can add on to make something more of an experience. And like you said, not just a normal class.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's that. That's the million dollar question, Jason. There are some different things to think about. So one is understanding, you know, when you teach, you're not just teaching a recipe, but you've got to do a little bit more. So telling the story behind it, infusing some sort of um, like, you know, whether it's competition or trivia or, you know, something that gets people engaged beyond the cooking. Because like I said, there may be people in there who aren't super into the cooking or they don't feel comfortable. Maybe they're nervous. They don't want to look bad. So you've got to give people a way to engage beyond just the recipe. And that that's a nice like crutch for people who want to participate, but are a little bit nervous about the cooking side of things. So we've seen yeah, for example, like trivia work really well. Getting people to dress up based on the theme. So if you're doing like Hawaiian food, I don't know, get people in their Hawaiian shirts and Lay's, send Lays to each team member. I you know, there there's different ways you can go about it. I generally discourage my students from sending perishable goods <laughs> to <laughs> students. I feel like getting into the meal kit delivery business is not profitable for anyone. So I wouldn't go down that route, but you, there is an opportunity if, you know, if you're a really crafty instructor, you could create some great kits that have, you know, cocktail shakers and like I said, a a lay or whatever, and charge a pretty good premium to get those out. Now, you may not be making a lot of, of profit on that, but that's kind of one piece that rounds out the experience. It makes it feel like something more than just, you know, them hopping on Zoom and you know, kind of going through this cooking thing, but there are ways to do it that are tangible, intangible. And yeah, you've, you've got to be creative. And a lot of it comes down to also how you package and sell it. You've got to give that client confidence that, you know, you understand that this is a team building experience and you, you know, understand the importance of engaging their team members so that they have a great time and it makes their manager look good for booking it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, we've had a great conversation about a lot of higher level things, you know, a few specifics here, yeah. but if people are listening and they're like, I really want to make this happen. I want to dive in. I want to learn a lot more about the specifics and what to do. Can you talk a little bit about your cooking class business school that can help fill them in on all that information that they need to really make this happen? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I'm glad you pointed that out because I'm very much a step-by-step person, and so We threw a lot out there. It was kind, you know. There's a lot, lot floating around in this episode. So if you are the type of person who really wants that step-by-step instruction, I do have my program. It's called Cooking Class Business School, and in it, I walk you through six recipes. I call them recipes, but they're modules. And then each recipe teaches you basically how to go from the very beginning, which is understanding your niche, really digging into your, your unique brand story to building your marketing funnel, setting up your sales and promotion funnels, and then ultimately at the end, how to get the tech going and how to make sure that your students have a great experience. So that is my program. On top of that, we also have coaching calls and a community with small accountability pods. So it's a a combination of the content, community, and coaching. It's a fantastic program, if I do say so myself, and that's where I spend most of my time. And I would encourage you all to learn more. So I do have a free masterclass that walks you through my four-step framework for creating profitable online cooking classes. And in that, you'll also learn at the very end more about my program. So you can go to hiddenrhythm.com slash masterclass to learn more.
0: Awesome. I really appreciate you coming on, Cynthia, sharing all of your expertise. I've learned a lot. I'm sure my audience learned a lot as well. So thank you for taking time out of your your busy schedule and uh, spending it with us today. Thank
1: you. This was so fun. I, I love talking to food people. It doesn't feel like work, Jason, does it?
0: <laughs> yeah, I very much enjoy being in this industry. Yeah, it's nice. <laughs>
1: absolutely. Thank you again
0: so again for more on cynthia you can head to hiddenrhythm.com or hiddenrhythm.com masterclass and be sure to check out her podcast as well the experiential table it's i know a lot of people have been on there and interviewed it's a great podcast so be sure to check that out and this has been making bacon we're all about helping you serve your fans grow your income and get the most out of your blog until next time i'm jason logston